You've probably heard about this, but not to get too deep into the weeds on things, but one of the most intensely debated issues in uh, for us as Christians regarding the age of the universe is the fact that light comes from distant stars and trying to figure that out as Christians who believe in a six-day, six-literal, 24-hour-day creation. Uh, you know the fact how we can see, scientists sh- you know, have seemed to have shown this, that light from stars that are billions of light years away uh, must somehow demonstrate then that the world must be billions of years old. I mean, in other words, if it takes billions of years for light from these stars that are really, really far away to travel to the earth just for us to see them, then clearly we're looking at those stars as they were billions of years ago. So then the earth must be billions of years old. And of course, many different Christians have um, uh, intelligent science, science uh, scientists uh, and Christian scientists have assembled great arguments to explain that, which is, which is good. And uh, even doing so without denying the science around us. And uh, by the way, uh, as a side note, Dr. Jason Lyle here, I'm going to put his picture up here. If it'll come up, there we go. Dr. Jason Lyle, he is a creation scientist. He's like my favorite, my favorite creation scientist, astrophysicist, mathematician. He's also a Bible scholar of sorts, you could say, and basically super smart man extraordinaire has an excellent answer actually to the light from distant stars a dilemma that we face and our concept um, with space-time. And he addresses the issue from the idea of space-time. And I read through his journal abstract that he put together, and then he's got a book on it. Um, and it's really, really compelling. It's a really good argument. And basically, I came away pretty convinced by it that this really has to do with how space-time works, and we're just scratching the surface of, of that from a scientific perspective. In any case, it kind of falls outside the scope of our session this morning. I can't get into details on that. Uh, but it is amazing to me, and it, it got me thinking, and this is why I started this way, how skeptics today strongly push this billions of light years evidence uh, to show that, well, the world must be billions of years old, and so the Bible's wrong. But they don't even realize, these skeptics, that they have their own billions of years problem in their Big Bang Theory. The Big Bang Theory. You see, while we as Christians have worked really hard to find scientific reasons for why we appear, we, it seems that light from these stars is billions of years old, the Big Bang Theory itself cannot handle their own age of the earth. As funny as that sounds. Given the fact that they kind of think that the universe is like 14 billion years old or something like that, whatever, that that's not even close to long enough to achieve near perfect or near similar temperatures in the universe. And you'll be like, what are you talking about, Jay? What do you, what do you mean? Well, you know the Big Bang Theory, right? It's kind of like it starts as a singularity, and then it just starts to replicate and expand over billions of years, and then somehow here we are all today, right? You know that. You've probably heard that. Well, scientists have actually shown pretty substantially that the temperature in most every place in the universe is basically the same. It's basically the same. And the question is, is scientists are scratching their heads on that. 
How did it get that way in only 14 billion years of years? It would have taken a lot longer scientifically for that to have happened. And you're like, well, why are you getting into all these details? Well, my point by that is that often when we as humans look at evidence, when we're trying to solve a problem, trying to solve a dilemma, when we look at evidence, we are only considering often some of the evidence, but not all of it. Not all of it. We are prone to ignoring evidence that doesn't fit our conclusion already. We're prone to doing that. But if we want to be good investigators, good scientists, good students of Scripture, we must look at all the evidence and address it. We must be willing to look at all the evidence. And that's what Solomon does in Ecclesiastes. That's what Solomon does in Ecclesiastes. And we will see that today. Solomon doesn't just consider some of the evidence. He factors in all of the evidence, all of it. And I think if people did that more today in life, scientists especially, they would recognize and admit how little they actually know about things. I mean, it's amazing how overly confident I think evolutionists are in the limited amount of evidence that they look at. I guess <laughs> you would be that confident if you just are in the habit of just sweeping things under the rug that you don't agree with and you just ignore them. And it doesn't comply with your evolutionary worldview. Yeah, we'll just not even talk about that. But Solomon doesn't do that. He doesn't sweep things under the rug. He factors in everything. And how do we know that? Because he even does it to the point where he reaches conclusions that he despises and hates. That's being fair with the evidence, isn't it? When you, I don't like this outcome. It's the worst outcome. Yet I have to admit, it is the right outcome. In other words, Solomon is brutally honest with his conclusions, even if he has to be hurt by them. And God uses that in Ecclesiastes so that we can benefit from his observations. And I think it's something we can be thankful for for Solomon's labor, uh, even though obviously some of it was in great sin, this is actually, there's a lot that has really helped us when he writes about it in Ecclesiastes. Um, This is why, as I mentioned in my first sermon, that Solomon tells us to fear God. Solomon tells us to fear God. And we're going to define that more as we continue throughout this series. But this is a theme that will become the punchline to the book. This becomes the punchline to the book. Now, as you approach this book, you can almost think of this as like a mystery book or a mystery film. Solomon is like a detective or a private investigator looking under every rock, asking all the right questions, looking for all the answers so that he can piece together this puzzle of life and try to find out what God is really up to. What is God up to in this world? He's like the Sherlock Holmes of the Bible, you could say. What's God's plan? Is he scripting history for a certain outcome? And can I figure that out? What is this outcome that God is orchestrating in life? Why did he make us? What's the point of all of this? And Solomon is desperate to figure this out. And you should be too. You should be too. Now, 
just by way of review, before we dive into some things, remember where we've come. We've talked about the who, the when, the where, the why, and the how, right? Remember that from yesterday? Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes like a sermon. Late in his life, he's recounting the years of his experimentation and and sin and showing how he miserably failed God's standard for what it means to be the coming Messiah. And now he writes this sermon to be delivered to every nation and, I would argue, translated into all their languages too. And it's obviously including Israel. Israel's one of the nations that's going to benefit from this sermon, you could say. And he speaks to everyone coming on their turf, coming from the lowest common denominator, in their shoes, and then he attempts to lead them to the right conclusions about life. And he doesn't use his God's name, Yahweh. He doesn't use his God's words, the Old Testament. He simply observes, and then he presents his conclusions, that really a truly honest investigation into life without God's revelation, leads to, I don't know. And and I don't know an answer. There's not not great answers at this point for Solomon. And you're like, really? That's where he lands? Well, we'll be addressing that more as as we go along. This message is perfectly timed for the world of his day, though. It really is perfectly timed. As he originally thought he was going to be the Messiah, he was going to unite the world in peace. But now it's clear he's miserably failed, and the world is going to turn back to war and animosity against each other, and specifically against Israel. And so with Ecclesiastes, Solomon appeals to the world one last time before he dies. And he doesn't want to leave the earth without giving the best of his wisdom before he dies. The best. That's what I would argue. I think Ecclesiastes, I don't know if you could say maybe the best, but it's definitely the most complete of wisdom that Solomon gives. Maybe you could call it the best of his wisdom because it factors in everything. It factors in everything. That's the who, the when, the where, and the why, specifically. And I'm going to go back in just a little bit here before we dive into the text and just kind of break out the how a little bit more, give you a little bit more of an outline of the book before we get into it. Uh, How do we frame our thoughts around this complicated book? It is complicated. It's very complicated. It sounds like Solomon's going in circles a lot in his thinking And one way that I've decided to do this is to give you a one-word snapshot of each chapter. So I had to sit down and think about this for a while and try to find one word for each chapter that mostly describes that chapter. Now, keep in mind, this is not a perfect thing. Uh, Our chapter divisions that we have in the Bible are man-made. Solomon didn't write chapters, didn't write verses when he wrote this sermon, wrote this book. And so our chapters don't always fit perfectly exactly what the author maybe would have determined for his writing. Like he would be like, yeah, that's kind of fits it. Um, But I think the Bible chapters are really helpful, obviously for us, because they help break down the Bible into reasonably sized chunks. They organize the book generally in a way that the author might agree with. And so... Let me give you a jet tour through each chapter and the one word that I've assigned. Again, not perfect. It's my assignment of the word. 
But generally speaking, I think this will be helpful. Chapter 1 is really Solomon's observation. It's really Solomon's observation. Solomon observes the cyclical, meaningless nature of life in chapter 1. Cyclical, it's meaningless. Chapter 2 is his experimentation. We'll be going back to these, by the way, so don't worry. If you're trying to write tons of stuff down, we will be coming back. Chapter 2 is his experimentation. Solomon relates how he experimented and what he explored in his experimentation. That's chapter 2. And then chapter 3 is about time. It's actually a really fun chapter. Solomon realizes that time plays a significant role in God's purposes in life. Time can work against us. Time can also teach us. Chapter 4, alliances. Alliances. Life is hard, and having loyal friends around you as your allies helps you. Don't do life on your own, Solomon says. But, (laughs) then he kind of backtracks and says, but friends can turn on you too. (laughs) Chapter 5, waiting. Waiting. God's purposes are hard to track. Wait for him to speak for himself. Don't speak for him. He's, he's getting things done behind the scenes, and we need to wait and see what he might do. That's chapter 5. It's a very powerful chapter. Chapter 6, unattainability. That's a mouthful. Unattainability. Seeking for ultimate fulfillment for the soul is an exercise in futility. Solomon says it's a waste of time, and then even more so, Man cannot attain to it. Man cannot even attain to God. Unattainability. Unattainability. Then chapter 7 is all about character. Character. Difficult circumstances will come, but they can train you to get the right perspective in life and produce in you godly character. Yet man is imperfect and the highest peaks of wisdom cannot be attained. It's chapter 7. Chapter 8 wisdom wisdom whatever wisdom we do have it gives us an advantage especially if we fear god chapter nine is all about eternity is there life after death solomon muses about that for quite a bit if so how do i know whether i will enjoy it or hate it after i die it's good that i'm still alive now to figure out as much as i can about life after death Chapter 10 is about role reversals, role reversals. Life goes in circles. It's going in circles and it can turn on you. Life can turn on you in a twisted sort of fate, but God is behind it all. And then chapter 11 is about giving, giving. Difficult times are coming. Don't let those times make you turn inward to yourself. Prepare for hard times by doing the unexpected By giving to others. And then chapter 12 is remembering. Remembering. Remember God before you get old and life becomes so painful, it will be hard to think fondly of him in your old age. So that's the book of Ecclesiastes. I guess we're done for the rest of the weekend. No, I'm just kidding. We have much to dive in to get into those details. Uh, I kind of like, uh, I gave away some things in there. Uh, But I think it's helpful to see it at the beginning. And then we'll dive into those details and you'll see how rich I think this gets. And we'll cover each of those. We'll actually return to each of these chapters in this screen here as we go one by one every time we reach a new chapter. 
this is going to really be a verse-by-verse look into Ecclesiastes. I mean, we're not going to read every verse, but that's basically what we're going to do. And I hope that will be helpful for you. But I cannot move on to, into the book here, into the actual, like chapter 1, verse 1, uh, until we look at another way to structure Ecclesiastes. Because what I've shown you right here is kind of a man-made list of chapters, right? Uh, and it's shaped around those 12 chapters, and there's some accuracy to it, but it's not exactly Solomon's outline, I would argue. Solomon's outline, you have to dig deep to find and see what, how he's using his terminology for his outline. And how do you find Solomon's outline? Well, you do that by seeing if you can find a pattern in his writing. See if you can find the pattern in his writing. I remember when I was studying math in college, being fascinated by the Fibonacci sequence. Does that sound familiar to some of you? Yeah. (laughs) I know it's numbers, super boring. You're like, you're doing this on a Saturday morning. I can't believe this. But this is surprisingly a beautiful sequence, uh, even for those who don't like math. At first, it doesn't seem like there's actually a pattern to this sequence when you look at it. It's not like the numbers 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, 12, 14, 16, right? Those are even numbers. You add 2 to get to the next number. There's a pattern there. But this pattern, 1, 1, 2, 3, 5, 8, 13, there doesn't seem to be a pattern to that. But there is a pattern, and it's a brilliant pattern. Each number, except for the first one, is the addition of the previous two numbers. You can see this. 1 plus 1 is 2. 1 plus 2 is 3. 2 plus 3 is 5. 3 plus 5 is 8. Yeah, you got it. It's actually not that hard, right? You're like, well, so what? Okay, that's a cool pattern. Someone made that up. That's nice. Well, it creates this. See that? It's kind of cool, huh? It's like a spiral. Well, it's even better when you see that this pattern creates some of the most amazing creatures and events that we see in creation. Do you know that? Like, what does a hurricane, a pine cone, a mollusk, and a galaxy all have in common? They're all encoded with the Fibonacci sequence. Did you know that? It's incredible. You can see some of these pictures that show that spiral pattern. They're all based upon the Fibonacci sequence. I say that because finding the pattern in a book of scripture is what we want. We want to understand that to get the best outline. What's the pattern for Solomon's book in Ecclesiastes? Is there a pattern? Pattern? Well, it's not the Fibonacci sequence, okay? But it is chiastic. Yes, it is. You're like, everything's chiastic in the Bible. It's a chiasm. You're like, how do you spell that? C-H-I-A-S-M. C-H-I-A-S-M. It kind of sounds counterintuitive. C-H-I-A-S-M. Because you're so well taught, I imagine that most of you have heard of this term before. I think Pastor Steve probably says it every other message. It's like how birds fly in the V-shape. This is kind of how this works, this chiasm. This is how, this is how biblical writers thought. They, it's like, yeah, it's part of their works of literature, but it's how they actually thought in life. They thought like this. And so reading from left to right, each bird mostly can correspond to the 
verbo, uh, this, bird, uh, <laughs> this bird on the other side until it leads to the middle bird. And of course, the middle one is the bird that's leading the entire group. He's directing the flight for everyone else. And so he's the most important bird of all. And so too, a chiasm works the same way. As we walk through the book, the early chapters will correspond with the later chapters until we reach the middle, which becomes the heartbeat of the message is in the middle. Perhaps you could say the most important part is the middle. And how do we know that this is the pattern? Because, remember what I said yesterday, Solomon reaches six big conclusions. Remember that? Six big conclusions. And those conclusions all use the terms, for the most part, eat, drink, and enjoy. Eat, drink, and enjoy. There's your pattern. When you find that, eat, drink, and enjoy, you found he's reached a big conclusion. Those eat, drink, and joy sections help us organize the book the way that Solomon intended it. So in this case, here's roughly what the chiasm, this bird V structure would look like for Ecclesiastes. You can see how there are these blue circles there. Those are each of the conclusions in the book. Those are each of the big conclusions. And I've put in there the scripture references as well for you to mark those. We'll come back to this too, by the way. Every time we reach a conclusion, we'll come back to this screen. Those conclusions mirror each other like the bird V pattern. And the middle of the pattern is not necessarily a conclusion, but it stands out and emphasizes the main theme of the entire book, which is to what? Fear God. Yeah. That's the center and the most important part. And then you can see every other time that fear God is mentioned. And roughly they mirror each other. Two on each side. I mean, it's roughly. I know it's not exact, but they, they kind of have this parallel feature. And each time we reach one of those conclusions, like I was saying, we will return to this diagram. And when we get to each conclusion, we will see that Solomon is not just making new conclusions, but he's reviewing his past conclusions, and then he's adding to those conclusions. So it's very clever the way that he designs it. It's not just, well, here's another random conclusion. No, no, he's building in a systematic, organized way and adding to his former conclusions. So this is going to be quite a journey for us as we take these steps Going chapter by chapter, conclusion by conclusion. All right, we need to get into the book. Enough time has been spent. I've used much time explaining as much of the details around the book. Now we're going to get into the book itself. Open up your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1. And as you're turning over there, just as a reminder, I'm going to be doing this as a verse-by-verse look into Ecclesiastes, so to speak. Uh, And by the end of this Sermon. This will feel maybe a little bit incomplete, this sermon. You kind of get to the end, you're kind of like, that's it? Cliffhanger? What's next? Well, that's kind of how Solomon leaves you in a lot of his conclusions, doesn't he? So I'm going to model that today in this sermon, and then we will pick it up and whet your appetite. That means you've got to be here tomorrow. Well, I know you have to be. You're, you're here. so But you're going to want to be here tomorrow, okay? Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1, and it is here in chapter 1 that we have Solomon's observation chapter. This is his observation. Chapter 1 introduces us to 
um, the general observations that he made in his experiment. His experimentation will be explained in chapter 2, but these are his observations, and he's going to give us, at the beginning, the answer that he comes to at the end. So he's going to give you the answer ahead of time in chapter 1. And the answer is, everything's meaningless, right? That's his conclusion. This is actually exactly what scientists do when they write scientific journal articles, okay? When you, uh, you can imagine, Ecclesiastes is basically like a journal article written by Solomon. And the first chapter is his abstract. It's his abstract. You're like, what's an abstract? An abstract in science journal writing is a one or two paragraph summary at the beginning of the article that basically summarizes the entire article and tells everybody at the beginning what conclusion you come to in the article. And then the article explains in detail all of the experimentation that you went through and so forth. And that's what Solomon does in chapter one. You can basically see Ecclesiastes. It's like a journal article of, here's my experimentation. Here's the test. And here's what I came to, chapter one. And then he's going to explain in detail how he did that. So let's read Ecclesiastes 1, 1 and following. And as we go, I'll, I'll stop us and then we'll, we'll talk about some things. Okay, Ecclesiastes 1, verse 1. The words of Kohelet, right? The words of the preacher, the gatherer, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says Kohelet. Vanity of vanities. Everything is vanity. I'll stop there for a second. Notice how that's Solomon's final conclusion to his scientific experiment. Vanity, meaningless, empty, it's temporary, it doesn't last. Literally, vanity of vanities in verse 2. That just basically is a way in Hebrew to say, the greatest vanity of all. This is the most vain thing that I've ever come across. Notice also how he speaks in the third person of himself, right? It's like if I were to say, talk, to myself, talk about myself in the third person. Jay Street says, vanity of vanities. Why are you talking in the third person, Solomon? When you see that, it's probably because he wrote it knowing that this would be a sermon delivered by other people in other areas in other parts of the world. And they're saying, the preacher says, the gatherer says, everything's vanity. Now, verse 3. What is the profit for the man in all his labor, which he labors under the sun? There are those words, labor. You'll see them over and over again. Man labors hard, but what does it attain for him? And notice he uses the term under the sun, under the sun. We talked about this last time. Under the sun, it occurs in the book a lot. And it's Solomon's way of saying, I conducted this experiment, taking out all of the variables of God's revelation, his word, his promises, any kind of faith in what God has revealed. I've taken those things out and I only observe life based upon what I can see, hear, taste, smell, and touch, right? In other words, I performed what scientists call today an empirical experiment to analyze all of life. And then verse 4 and following, he introduces these circles in life. Verses 4 and following. Circles. Now, circles sound fun. Circles are like a carousel or some spinning ride in an amusement park, right? 
But I know many of you. You may like the roller coasters, right? But you can't stand the spinning rides, yeah? <laughs> I used to work at Magic Mountain uh, when I was in high school. I one time had to work at this, the Gotham City area. It used to be called that back in the day. And I was in charge of three spinning rides, uh, which at the time were called Circus Wheel, Grinder Gearworks, and Atom Smasher. And up here on the screen, you can actually see Atom Smasher. Uh, now, today, Atom Smasher is actually called the Flash. It's called the Flash. And now, as the guy in charge of these rides, I had to ensure that we test rode each of these rides twice a day. Uh, so that nothing, you know, we had to listen and hear and make sure nothing sounds wrong or anything. Even though we're just high school students. I don't know why we were doing that. Anyways, whatever. <laughs> don't always trust who's buckling you in it. Six Flags. Anyways, since no one on my team wanted to ride them, I often had to be the one that would ride them. So I'd have six trips going around and around and around on these rides every day. And it was quite nauseating. Well, that's how Solomon sees these circles in life. They're not fun. They're nauseating. They are depressing also. And I want you to listen to how he says this in verse 4. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth stands forever. The sun rises and the sun sets, but it goes to its place. Literally, it says, panting. Worn out. That's how he treats, how he talks about the sun. Shining again. There it is. And it made it all the way around. Obviously, it's not going around the earth, right? The earth's going around the sun. But from our vantage point, it's going around and it comes back panting again. Verse 6. Going to the south. Going around to the north. The wind is going about. Circling and circling. The wind is on its circuit and it returns there yet again. Verse 7, all of the rivers are going into the sea. They go to the same place, but the sea is not full. And the rivers and, and uh, to, to the place in which the rivers are going, there they are returning again. You can hear that drudgery of just going around and around and around. But it's not just creation. We see a lot of creation elements there. It's not just the the rivers and the wind and the sun. Solomon's point is actually to bring this home for you and for me. Yeah, the earth goes in circles. The universe goes in circles. But also man goes in circles. And it's very taxing to go in circles over and over and over again and get nowhere. So look at verse 8. All words are wearisome. Man is not able to talk about it or to say about it. The eye is not satisfied from seeing and the ear is not filled from hearing. That which is, is that which will be. And that which is done, is that which will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. In other words, I'm too tired of these circles. I can't even talk about them anymore. I'm so tired of them. Do you have parents? Uh, this is fun because I had this as an upbringing. Do you have parents when uh, you come back from school every day? Well, some, a lot of you homeschool, But, you know, you, you, you're at the dinner table together and your dad or your mom is like, so what new thing happened for you today? You're like, ah, we do this every night. There's nothing. It was good fine nothing new and you kind of get like tired like well i don't really want to talk about it that's really solomon here nothing's new everything's the same it's tiring to go to go in circles it's tiring to talk about 
And we will return to this later, but you see that word new there in verse 9. New. That's a very important word in Ecclesiastes. It doesn't occur very often, but it's really important. If you write in your Bibles or if you're taking notes, you probably should mark this word because we're going to come back to this. Nothing new is an essential point to Ecclesiastes and Solomon. And we'll have, we'll have a big answer for that at the end. So more on new, uh, we'll see later on. But Solomon continues with this idea of new in verse 10. He says, is there any, is there, is there a matter in which someone may say, see, this is new, this is new. Well, already it's existed for ages past, which came before us. There is no remembrance for former things, and even for later things, there shall not be for them. And there is not for them a remembrance with that which will shall be later, he says. In other words, we are going in circles, but as crazy as it is, no one's really noticing it. And everything's the same. They thought it was new, but it's not new. It's the same thing. I mean, you've heard the adage, don't let history repeat itself. Don't let history repeat itself. Why do people allow history to repeat itself? It's because they forget their history, right? They didn't learn from it. That's why it's really important to study history in school. Life is like a grand carousel, Solomon's saying, and everyone is riding on it over and over again, but no one seems to realize that it's taking them absolutely nowhere. They get off at the same place that they got on. Nothing has changed except that they got a few temporary thrills. It doesn't last very long, and then for some of them, it gets nauseating. So that's Solomon's way of catching your attention into his 12-chapter sermon at the very beginning. And now he's going to tell you how he came to this depressing conclusion. I want you to look at verse 12 with me. Look at verse 12. I, Kohelet, the preacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. And I set my heart to seek out And it literally says in Hebrew to spy out or to investigate with wisdom concerning everything which is done under the heavens. It is a terrible task God has given to the sons of man so as to occupy him. Solomon indicates that he was king over Israel. And by doing that, he's telling you and me that he's qualified to do this experiment than more than most people. And he can sit as king on the hill and observe every situation and role in life. Most people can't do what he did because he gets to be able to see everyone from every vantage point. And see how he says there in verse 13, I set my heart to search out and explore, or, or I said literally to spy out. That's basically scientific terminology. That's scientific terminology. He's telling you, that he's beginning his experiment with those terms. And the scope of his study will be everything that can be seen, heard, tasted, smelled, touched. Everything under the sun. And what was his final conclusion? Well, it is a troubling task that God has put on man's shoulders. It's troubling. Life goes in circles. And more than that, Life is painful, and it ends in death. That's certainly troubling. 
So he also concludes this in verses 14 and 15. I've seen all the works which are done under the sun. And behold, everything is vanity and a striving after the wind. What is crooked is not able to be straightened, and what is lacking is not able to be counted. So what's Solomon's conclusion? I studied everything, and guess what I found? It's meaningless. It's like chasing after the wind. And what is crooked is not able to be straightened. You can mark that, or you can even, if you write in your Bible, you could put chapter 7, verse 13, okay? Very important. We'll discuss that more when we get there. In other words, chasing after the wind is kind of dumb, because I told, I said this yesterday, but you can't catch the wind, and if you could be clever enough to say, I caught it, yeah! What was the point of doing that by yourself? So then he concludes chapter 1 and says, starting in verse 16, he says, I spoke in my heart saying, Behold, I've made myself great, and I increased in wisdom more than all who were before me over Jerusalem. And my heart has seen very much wisdom and knowledge. So then I gave my heart to know wisdom and knowledge, madness and folly, or your translation may say simple-minded folly. I know that even this... It is a striving after the wind, for with much wisdom comes much vexation, and he who increases in knowledge increases pain. That sounds so depressing. (laughs) Listen to what Solomon is saying in verse 16. He says, he had more wisdom than anyone who was before him. He's not trying to praise himself and say, man, I'm the smartest guy in the world. He's not trying to seek his own glory. What he's telling you is, I'm the most qualified person to do this. So you should listen to what I'm saying. I was wiser than anyone else who ruled over Jerusalem before me. And by the way, (laughs) it sounds so funny because it's like, well, who else ruled before him over Jerusalem? David. Well, I'm smarter than my dad. You know, like, and that's it. No, that's not what he's saying. There were actually several kings who reigned in Jerusalem before Solomon. There were several Canaanite kings specifically. And there was a rich history of wisdom and kingship in that city for hundreds of years. And he says, I was wiser than all of those who came before me in the city. And Solomon says, it gained me nothing. It gained me nothing. And you and I need to know this from the smartest guy who ever lived uh, outside of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. If he searched life thoroughly and found it meaningless, then we will do no better if we tried. We will do no better. In other words, Solomon's basically saying, don't try this at home. Don't try this at home. And Solomon explored all kinds of wisdom and knowledge. And he even explored madness and stupidity. That's kind of funny. He explored madness and stupidity. Doesn't he know that that's dumb? Uh, don't do that. If, but he's basically, if wisdom doesn't ultimately satisfy, then perhaps madness and stupidity might. But no, nothing gained him ultimate meaning and satisfaction. See how he's looking under every rock, even if it hurts him? He's even going to explore madness and stu- stupidity. In fact, by spending years, probably decades, using every ounce of brain energy he had into wisdom and into knowledge, it actually created a lot of stress and pain for him. That's the word that he uses there in verse 18. It's vexation. But the word basically you could describe it as stress. 
That's our word for it. Stress. He was super stressed from trying to explore all of these things. Though you're young, and some of you may, some of you yet may know this from experience, but after a really stressful situation, you ever needed a knot in your back rubbed out? Yeah? I can only imagine the knots in Solomon's back after all the stress that he put himself through. I mean, physical stress is very stressful, right? Have you ever done some extreme sport? It's very stressful on the body. But some say that mental stress is perhaps more overwhelming because it stresses both the body and the mind. Both. That's what Solomon forced himself to endure. Extreme levels of stress that probably few or none of us know. And that's chapter 1. That's Solomon's initial observation. Circles, meaningless, pain, stress. Sounds really great, doesn't it? Now let's look at chapter 2. The experimentation. The experimentation. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Specifically in the first 11 verses, Solomon experiments with pleasure and joy. Pleasure and joy. Is there true satisfaction in seeking pleasure and joy all on its own? Perhaps there is. Let's see. Chapter 2, verse 1. I said in my heart, come now. Let me test you with joy. And literally it says, and look on the good. Uh, The idea would be like experience happiness or goodness. And behold, even this is vanity. As to laughter, I said, it's maddening. And as to joy, what is this doing? That's what it literally says in Hebrew. What is this even doing? Joy. Happiness, joy, gladness, nice things. Those are good things. But Solomon realizes that eventually they fade away. In fact, look at verse 2. He says, even laughter is maddening. Remember how Solomon said in chapter 1 how he's going to take time to explore madness? Here it is. This is where he found madness. Madness in Hebrew, I want you to understand this. This is really important. Madness in Hebrew basically is the state of mind of someone who is living in their own reality. That's madness. They are extremely self-centered. That's madness. And that's that extreme self-focus, self-pleasure leads you to a mindset that actually disconnects you from reality and you begin to invent your own reality. Solomon actually explored that, as scary as that sounds. He found that seeking pure meaning out of laughter, (laughs) this is kind of the gateway to get to madness, trying to find pure meaning out of laughter, like forcing yourself to laugh all the time, divorces you from reality. It's like fake laughing so that he literally went mad. Now he didn't go mad forever because this was an experiment. So he cleverly controlled the outcome to ensure that he could come back. (laughs) That's incredible. That just blows my mind. But fascinating that he went that far, isn't it? And notice how even joy or gladness in verse 2 doesn't do anything. He literally says, what is joy even doing? It's like a lazy dog that won't carry his weight around the house. Um, And the reason why I say that is because we have this sweet little puppy named Buttermilk. She's a half terrier, half Maltese. That's not a stock photo. That's the one we took. It's really fun. Um, She's a half terrier, half Maltese. She's only like 12 to 15 inches tall. 
super cute, adorable. But my wife and I always talk about how she never carries her own weight around the house. We make fun of her for it. She doesn't wash dishes. She doesn't clean the floors after getting them muddy from coming in from the outside. She doesn't give herself a bath or even brush her own teeth. Her breath does smell bad sometimes, so we kind of have to like find ways to mitigate that. What does she do around the house? Nothing. She really doesn't do anything. She's just there to entertain us. That's what a, a puppy does. And that's joy for Solomon. That's what he's saying. So what does joy actually do for you? Nothing. It's there to entertain you. But it doesn't add years to your life. doesn't feed you food or cure you of deadly diseases. It's just temporarily entertaining. Now look at verse 3. I, literally it says, I spied out my heart. There's that word to spy out again. I tested it in my heart. To, and now this is an interesting phrase in Hebrew. He says, to drag my flesh in wine. It means to like pull my flesh. Like I'm going to bring you into this whether you like it or not. Through wine. And my heart was leading me in wisdom. And I took hold of foolishness even to see. Until I would see whether this was good for the sons of man which they are doing under the heaven according to the number of the years of their days. Now, there's that word I mentioned, right? There's that word at the beginning. I spied out at the beginning of verse 3. I observed. I studied. There's that scientific term again. And this time he says, with wine. Now, this is not a verse to go apply to yourself. Like, Pastor Jay said, I could go home and experiment with wine. No, you can't. Actually, Solomon's telling you how stupid this is, okay? But he did it so precisely, he actually tried to get drunk without losing his mind in his drunkenness. That's a fine line to balance there. Because he wanted to analyze his drunkenness while he was drunk. So he has to keep his mind in order to do it. Just to see maybe if drunkenness would be the ultimate satisfier to life. But the answer is, no, it's not, not even close. By the way, I feel like I'm kind of virgin. I'm going to move over here. Now look at verse 4. I made my works great. I built for myself houses. I planted for myself vineyards. I made for myself gardens and parks. I planted in them the tree of every kind of fruit. I made for myself pools of water to irrigate from them a forest sprouting trees. I purchased male servants and female servants. And uh, literally it says, sons of the house belonged to me. In other words, those who were born from these servants actually became mine. I owned them. Even livestock and cattle and uh, sheep, very many of those were mine, more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. And I collected for myself even silver and gold and the possession of kings and provinces. I established for myself male singers and female singers and the delights of the sons of men, many concubines. And I became great. And I increased more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. Even my wisdom stood by me in all of it. And everything which my eyes asked for, I did not withhold from them. And I did not restrain my heart from any joy. Because my heart was glad because of all my labor. And this was my portion from all my labor. Wow. Solomon did a lot. This is all that Solomon made. 
all that he created. And notice verse 5. Solomon planted gardens and parks. The word for park is this word, fardesim. Fardesim. Okay? Don't try to spell it. I mean, it's just, you don't need to spell it. But fardesim, I want you to hear it. Fardesim. It's a Persian word, right? I was telling you how there are different languages in Ecclesiastes, several of them. This is a Persian word from which we get the word paradise. Paradise. Fardesim. You can kind of hear it. If you change the, the F sound to a P, pardesim, you can hear par- paradise in there a little bit. Remember the thief on the cross? Jesus says to him, today you will be with me in what? Paradise? Where does Jesus get that idea of paradise from? It's from this idea that heaven is a beautiful park and a garden, just like the kind of parks that Solomon built in Ecclesiastes. And notice the word garden, verse 5. And then the word vineyards in verse 4. And then really important at the end of verse 5, a tree bearing every kind of fruit. Now your wheels might be turning. What is Solomon doing? That language is clearly pointing us back to one place in Scripture, the Garden of Eden. What is Solomon doing? Trees bearing every kind of fruit. Doesn't that sound familiar? That's Genesis. That's Genesis chapter 2. Trees bearing every kind of fruit. That's not a coincidence. Solomon is intentionally trying to recreate the Garden of Eden. He's trying to recreate the Garden of Eden. Why? Because he's trying to get the world back to a place of perfect peace, safety, tranquility, no pain, no death, only bliss. Remember? He thinks he's going to be the what? The Messiah, right? So he should be able to get everyone back to the what? The Garden of Eden. And on top of this, he added many animals and servants, concubines, singers, wealth, power. And imagine this. He withheld from himself nothing. Nothing. Anything he wanted, he made sure to get. And his conclusion from all of that. His conclusion from all of that. Look at verse 11. So I turned. It's like he's turning to now look and analyze it all. I turned. To all my works, which my hands did, in all, and, and in the labor which I labored to do them. And behold, everything is vanity and a striving after the wind, and there is no profit under the sun. Nothing. No profit. Okay. So, since creating beautiful things or enjoying beautiful things doesn't last, that doesn't satisfy, perhaps I should look to wisdom then. It's not possessions. It's not things that you can build in creation. Maybe it's wisdom. And I need to start looking at wisdom and other aspects of that madness and folly. So look at verse 12. So then he turns. He says, I turned to look at wisdom and madness and folly. For what will be for the man who shall come after the king since everything is already done? Everything's already done for him. In other words, since I'm going to die anyways, someone's going to come after me. He's going to inherit that stuff that I built, that I enjoyed for a little bit. But he's not even going to have the satisfaction of building all of that and having the joy at least of like, oh man, we're seeing this project come to fruition. So he's not going to enjoy that. And then I also learned that the actual pleasure that comes from it is not going to last. So 
this isn't going to work. We're not going to do this tangible stuff. I'm going to now explore something less tangible and do something more mental. Maybe wisdom will satisfy. So let's explore wisdom a little bit. And hey, there is an advantage to wisdom, isn't there? Okay, so we're getting somewhere. Verse 13, he says, so I, I saw that there is an advantage to wisdom more than folly as there is an advantage to light more than darkness. I mean, isn't light better than darkness when you're trying to get stuff done? Absolutely. So there is an advantage to wisdom, isn't there? Verse 14, the wise man, his, head's, his, his eyes are in his head, but the fool goes about in darkness. But I know that there is one fate that will happen to both of them. So you're like, Solomon, you're taking the rug out from your argument right away. Why are you doing this? So he's saying, yeah, wisdom's profitable. I mean, it's definitely better than being dumb. Dumb people can do dumb things to actually accidentally kill themselves. You know, there's actually a whole society dedicated today that grants what they are called Darwin Awards to those who kill themselves accidentally in dumb ways. (laughs) Well, wisdom is better than being dumb. Isn't it? It's better than foolishness. Because it'll probably keep you alive longer and give you a better quality of life. Sure. But even in verse 14, he admits the wise and the fool both die. So it's only a temporary advantage. Wisdom is only a temporary advantage. So he continues in verse 15. So then I I said in my heart, as the fate of the fool, so also it's going to happen to me. Hmm. So why have I become wise then excessively? Hmm. So I spoke in my heart, even that's vanity. For there is no remembrance for the wise person with the fool forever. People forget both. Eventually they'll forget both. In the coming days, which, in the days which are coming, basically, he says, everything's forgotten. Boy, and how the wise die like the fool. They both die. People eventually forget all the labor that the wise man poured into his life, just like they forgot the fool. They forget the fool quickly, but they forget the wise quickly as well. So ultimately, he says, it was a waste of time. That was a waste of time. In life, wisdom is helpful to a point, but in the grand scheme of everything, the wise man is just another name on a tombstone next to a fool. That's what Solomon concludes. At the end of the day, you're another name on a tombstone. So Solomon spent decades of his life stressing his mind to know wisdom and building all these gardens and parks and forests. And how do you think he feels after decades of experiments that resulted in meaninglessness? What do you, how do you think he feels after that? He loathes it. This is disaster. This is despair. In fact, he relates somewhat suicidal terminology here, and I'll show you that in a second. Look at verse 17. So I hated life. Whoa, I hated life. Don't run over those words too quickly. I hated life, for it was troubling upon me. Work was troubling upon me, which was done under the sun. For everything is vanity and a chasing after the wind. Boy, he hates it. He hates life now. It was pointless. Why? Why was it pointless? Verse 18. I hated all my labor, which I labored under the sun. 
Why? Because I have to give it to some man who will come after me. I have to give it all up. And then who knows if he's going to be wise or if he's going to be a fool. And then he's going to exercise authority over all my labor, which I labored for. I labored for that, but he gets to inherit all of it. In which I became wise under the sun, and even this was vanity. So then I turned, and I want you to hear this word. I turned and I despaired. I despaired. That's a very unique Hebrew word that's basically saying, I've reached my wit's end. My heart despaired concerning all the labor which I labored under the sun. Not only was all my life's work pointless, I now have to hand it off to someone else who probably will mess it all up. And he might be really dumb. (laughs) Brian Regan. And so Solomon uses this word despair. He despairs in verse 20. And I think that's the ultimate term for total meltdown there. That, I would argue, is suicidal terminology. He wants to end his life. And this is probably, I think, the most important point of the sermon right now. I want you to know he could have ended his life at this point. But he didn't. He didn't. He moans, though, in verse 21... For there is a man in which his labor is in wisdom and in knowledge and success. But to a man which he did not labor in it, he has to give it all up to him. He has to give his portion to him. Even this is vanity and a great evil. For what shall be for the man in all his labor and in the striving of his heart, in which he has labored under the sun, for all his days are painful. And there's that word, vexation. In other words, his task is stressful. Even at night, his soul does not rest. Even this is vanity. Solomon saying, I labored hard all my life, and now I'm going to die and hand off all my great work to some loser, probably. And now I have nothing. And more than that, I'm super stressed because of all of this work. And I'm in pain from all my labor. And I'm old. And I can't get my youth back and do it all over again. And he despairs. He despairs. But he didn't give up on life. He didn't. Instead, he does something really valuable for you and for me that we benefit from. He takes time to think about all that he found and he comes to his first big conclusion for us. This is his first big conclusion. Look at verse 24. There is nothing better for the man than that he eats and drink and show his soul good in his labor. There's the eat, drink, yes. Even this I have seen that it is from the hand of God. For who is able to eat? And who can enjoy outside of him? For to a man who is good before him, before God, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, God has given a task to gather and to collect, to give to the good man who's before God. Even this is vanity and a striving after the wind. Now, here we find that first big conclusion in the book. And we will conclude our time together this morning with this conclusion here. Okay. And we know 
that it's one of the conclusions because you hear that word, those words, eat, drink, and enjoy, right? Eat, drink, and enjoy. First big conclusion. Solomon doesn't despair. He picks himself up off the ground and takes what he can from the experiment. There's some good here that I've learned. It's not all despair. Wisdom was good. Yes, I know it's temporary. It was better than foolishness. Also joy. Yes, it it doesn't last forever, but it is something that we can experience in life. It can give us momentary gladness. And so Solomon concludes, uh, concludes, let's enjoy the life that God has given us. Let's enjoy it. Let's be thankful for it. Clearly, it's a gift from him. I may not understand yet. I may not understand yet what he's planned for me after I die, but I know from my observations that God, for some reason, has given us things to enjoy, and so we should enjoy them. We should enjoy them while they last. And notice something very important. He speaks fondly of God for the first time in the book here. It's the first time he speaks fondly of God. It's only the second time he's actually mentioned God in the book so far, but this is the first time he actually speaks well of him. In other words, when Solomon factors God in, into the equation for the first time, it brings a little hope and a little meaning to life. And that will get brighter and brighter as we go through the book. Now Solomon does balance his conclusion, recognizing that living for joy with no boundaries, like, oh, let's just, you know, enjoy life, eat and drink for tomorrow we die. He's not saying that. He's not saying that. Because he says... Don't go after sin. Because if you go after pleasure, just for pleasure's sake, just to, for whatever it's worth, that leads to nothing. There's sin that gets involved there. That's what verse 26 says. And the sinner will most often have a worse life than the righteous man. So even from just a here and now perspective, we should enjoy life, but do so wisely and carefully. We should be thankful for the good things, but live in a way that is self-controlled and not Pursue sinful pleasures, otherwise we will pay for it. We will pay for that. So, where have we come so far? Well, chapter 1, Solomon's observation. He observed all aspects of life. He observed all aspects of life. In his observation, he saw the nauseating, cyclical nature of life, like an amusement park ride that just won't stop. Nothing's new. Everything's the same. We aren't getting anywhere in life. No one seems to realize it until they're dead or it's too late. And then life is really pointless in Solomon's first observations. So he decided then to experiment with pleasure in chapter 2, and then with wisdom, parks, gardens, pools, servants, wealth. None of it satisfies ultimately, and the labor was exhausting, and he will have to pass it off to someone else when he dies. And that person may recklessly destroy all of his work and do dumb things. So wisdom is good, it's helpful, but it's only temporary, because both the wise person and the fool eventually die, and people forget both of them. And that led Solomon to despair, we saw. But he didn't give up. He didn't give up. He concluded that life can be enjoyed, and we should recognize it as a gift from God, but it is temporary. Solomon is far from reaching his final conclusions. He has a lot more to say to us. But you now have a little bit of a distant light at the end of the tunnel that you can see now. That Solomon has been exploring and God is at the center of that light. 
As we will see, fearing God is something that we will need to understand in order to find out what God is really up to in life. We've got to figure out what does it mean to fear God? And we're going to look at that in detail next time. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that you gave Solomon great wisdom and that not only did he not give up, but you gave him that ability not to give up and then you did not give up on him because you did not want to give up on us. These words are incredibly insightful. We need this He's like a pioneer. He's plowed the path before us. We need to walk this path. We need to hear these words. We need to know where this comes, where all this wisdom comes from. What is truly valuable in life? What is truly meaningful? Those are great discussion topics that perhaps may be even spoken about in small groups here in a few minutes. Lord, help us to value your word The argument in Ecclesiastes is far from complete for us. We know that there's more to address. We have to get to the end to see the bright, bright picture. But thank you for even the smallest of light that we've seen so far. And help us to know that truth and know that light even deeper and better. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.